Well, welcome everybody. Turn uh, with us in your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 11. It's going to be a really exciting study tonight, just uh, seeing some things in this passage that uh, I've never really uh, laid hold of as far as application is concerned. Mm. And, you know, on that light, you know, there's an old saying that no one ever builds statues in honor of critics. You notice that? I, I don't think there's a... Remember Siskel and Ebert at the movies? You oh, yeah. Know, those guys that yeah. used to do the movie reviews? Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, nobody ever gave them Oscars. Um, you know, nobody ever gave them awards, you know. But uh, there's something inside of us that I think is drawn to pointing out what's wrong in the world rather than doing something constructive to make things right in the world. I think that's probably proof, proof positive that we have a fallen sinful nature. You know, I, I love what uh, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse 14. He said, do all things without complaining and disputing. Well, I think that would shut the internet down right then and there, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you may be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Hmm. You know, I think if uh, I personally, if I got through a day without complaining or disputing about something, I'd be living a very different life than what the way I usually live. And, and yet, this is one of the real signs of a healthy Christian life. You know, God wants you and me to be exhibit A in this world of the reality of a genuine relationship with Jesus. If we, in fact, as believers, as the Bible says, that Christ in you is the hope of glory. I've been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If that is, in fact, the reality, that Jesus is living in us, then we should really be standing out like sore thumbs in this world. We should really be shining in this darkness. And, and I know that some of you, whenever you hear a pastor talking about, oh, here we go. We're going to get guilt-tripped about not sharing our faith enough. And uh, you're going to give us the five-point whammy and tell us to go out there. And it's Easter time and invite people out and all the things you usually hear. No, actually, uh, what I want to remind you of is this. Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, notice Jesus didn't say there, you will do the work of witnessing. You'll be my evangelists. No, he said, you'll be my witnesses. Now, Bo, what is a witness? Someone who knows, uh, they see the work of someone, they witness it. They, they experience something personally, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So as we experience the presence of Jesus personally, God wants to use us as a witness. Now, whenever this subject comes up, you know, it sounds good in theory and it's kind of out there. Yeah, I know I need to be a, a, a witness. I wish I was a better witness for the Lord. But, you know, how exactly do you pull that off? Well, in Revelation chapter 11 tonight, we're going to see two guys who really pulled it off. Maybe uh, we could call them uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 on steroids. 
because these two witnesses are going to rock the entire world within three and a half years. And, and among other things, I think we're going to see in this passage the principles that are going to make these two last days witnesses so effective and so powerful. And, and believe it or not, by seeing how they laid a hold of God's truth and how they shared God's truth, I think the Lord is going to show us some neat things about how to take that calling of God to be a witness. You know, oh, I can't share my faith. I'm not a silver-tongued order. Oh, I, I, I can't talk to non-believers. They might ask me a hard question. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, uh, you know, I've, I've got a job to keep, and if, uh, you know, people find out I'm a Christian, it's going to be... T- you know, here's the deal. Witnessing isn't something you do. It's something you are. And, and hopefully we're going to see what that R is all about as, as Revelation 11 uh, unfolds. So you want to start out by reading the passage for us, Bob? Sure. I'm going to start in verse 10 of the previous chapter. Then I took a little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the outer court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Wow, there's a lot there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, know, if you're following along at home or, or here in, in uh, the friendly confines, uh, if you want to follow along with this and, and get a handle on it and you're taking notes, the first thing you need to put down here is we're going to see the place uh, of a world-changing witness described here in the tribulation period. And in a lot of ways, it's like the least likely place you could ever imagine. You know, at first glance, you know, you're saying, well, we're talking about a temple here. You know, it seems kind of churchy. seems like, like, like a place where, you know, a lot of spiritual stuff is going on. Yeah, spiritual stuff's going on. But as we're going to see in a moment, uh, the spiritual stuff going on here isn't playing for our team. It's the other team that is running the show at this particular point. Now, notice, first of all, it says, I was given a read like a measuring rod. Now, I think it, it was great, Bo, that you started with uh, verses 10 and 11 of Revelation chapter 10. How does that tie in to this first verse here? Well, because John is now going to be taking some action. He, t- he takes this little scroll. He eats it. God's word is going to be sweet to him, but there's also going to be a bitter part of God's word. And where do we find a parallel to that action? Yeah, and, and just like we're going to see in other sections of this chapter. It's going to be in the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel is all over uh, Revelation chapter 11. In fact, if you've stayed away from the book of Ezekiel like the plague, uh, this is going to be kind of an education for you because we're going to talk a lot about the prophet Ezekiel and his ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, the book of Ezekiel is the first book in the Bible I ever read. 
That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm sure it was quite cool. Yeah, and, and you know why? Because uh, as a non-believer, I watched a special on UFOs, and they said that there were UFOs in the Bible in the book of Ezekiel. Really? And, and, I, and I wanted to find out if there were really UFOs there. So we were on a vacation uh, uh, driving through Utah, and they, they had a uh, King James Bible in the little bed stand. And so the first thing in the Bible I ever read was the book of Ezekiel. And man, by the time I got through chapter one, I was like, whoa, this is weird. Maybe I should go back to Genesis and uh, I'll read the first part of it. And before too long, I'm, I'm reading these and thous and weird guys with accent marks and flip a few books forward and someone's throwing a kidney up in the air. And I just put it aside and I said, who in the world can possibly get anything out of this book? And it was like about four years later, I got saved. But that's a little departure there. <laughs> Lots of interesting stuff in Ezekiel. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, you listened to Journey, that band Journey. Yes. They had a song, Wheels in the Sky Keep on Turning. Yeah, I don't know where all the people Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard people say, like, man, I heard Journey and I thought of Ezekiel 1. And I'm like, whoa, dude, I never quite put that together. But, you know. Well, some people go to Journey, others go to Iron, Iron Maiden, Maiden. But that's you another know, story. Hey, yeah. <laughs> but that was, like, really bold. You know, yeah. Number of the Beast, 666. Yeah, Exactly. You know? they, they were just out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but notice, we see here that, first of all, like Ezekiel, John was given a book, in this case, yeah. a small book to eat, uh, and he ate it, and it was sweet to the taste. But in John's case, uh, as opposed to Ezekiel's, it made his stomach bitter. Yeah. Uh, and we saw last week that uh, even though, uh, you know, Psalm 19 uh, tells us that, uh, you know, again, God's word to us, God's judgments and, and so on are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honey come more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Uh, you know, there's always in this world the sweetness of God's word, but there's a bitterness to it all. What is that bitterness all about? Well, you'll have to get the tape from last week. Right. Because I went over it. That's right. But in a nutshell, <laughs> but, just well, to catch yeah, our folks yeah, up. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's just that, you know, God's word splits both ways. You know, there's a blessing to it, and there's also the ramifications of God's word. You know, Jesus' words are tough. You know, you know, he who loves father or mother more than me cannot be my disciple. I mean, that is a great example of how there's a, a beautiful truth in there that blesses us, that God is God, and he is to be worshipped. Right. He's not to be rivaled by anybody, as A.W. Tozer once said. But, but there's also a cutting there. There's a ramification. And John is, is told that you're going to have to prophesy about nations, tongues, and kings. And there's going to be... <laughs> Some tough stuff here. Yeah, you know, whenever we come face to face with God's tough stuff, yeah, I would say that any message that has really been of lasting significance in my life that I've heard preached or proclaimed has always kind of cut both ways yeah. on that. I mean, I think of the night I gave my life to the Lord in the movie theater in Oxnard, California, when I finally understood that Jesus loved me, and that's why he died for me. And that was the most revolutionary concept because all of the Christians that I had talked to down there, they told me how they felt about politics. They told me how they felt about creationism. They told me how they felt about morality. They told me even a few times how they felt that um, I was going to the ultimate weenie roast and they were glad I was going. Uh, but, but the other side of it was, you know, here I discovered that God really loved me in spite of all of that. But no Christian ever told me that God loved me. 
And, and that was just revolutionary to me. But it also cut me through to the heart because I realized, oh, my gosh, this Jesus who loved me and died for me, I've mocked him. I, I've harassed his people. I've tried to talk them out of faith in him. I've done all kinds of things that I know that would be very pleasing to him. Yeah, and I, I think that's very um, much how the born-again experience is. I know I was at Silver Strand, never hung out with Christians, you know, not a church kid at all. That's a beach that Bo yes. and I used yeah. to both serve. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. S- I'm saying yeah. like you guys are all, yeah. like you know, me, yeah. and, me and Scott grew up, though, 15 miles away from each other. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, hanging out on that beach at night and, um, you know, not knowing really Jesus at all, but just sitting there and being convicted and, 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 and knowing God was wrapping his arms around me saying, Bo, I love you. I love you. And I, and I was so tripped out by that. But then there was an incredible sort of that repentance that, man, I am so undone. Yeah, I've wasted my life. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, and so burdened by the, the tragedy of it all, you know, of me living a, a very wasteful existence, you know, uh, uh, you know, not thinking right about God all the mockery towards Christianity and towards Christians. How many times I cussed out Christians, you know, in school. How many times I said just all kinds of vile things. Um, and um, But I knew God loved me on that beach, too. It was like two things were happening at the same time. Incredible love like I never experienced before in my life. Nothing I ever experienced yeah. was like it. Crying, just yeah. so bawling don't even know what's going on. Like, yeah. why is this happening? But yet also there was that conviction work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So what, I think whenever God's word goes forth, that's what happens. And so here we see another one of those bitter, sweet yeah. kind of things in the word of God. The first thing we see here is he's given a reed like a measuring rod. Uh, a measuring rod uh, was uh, traditionally at that time six cubits. I know that clears, clarifies everything for you. A, a cubit was roughly the distance from your top middle finger down to your elbow, or roughly about 18 inches. So a measuring rod was about nine feet uh, in length. Uh, and the angel said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Well, again, this is a hearkening back to Ezekiel, uh, but with a little bit of a difference. In Ezekiel, an angel is doing the measuring of this temple that uh, is being revealed to Ezekiel at that particular time. Now, why this measuring rod? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of different ideas about it, but maybe the best idea about it is that what we're talking about is precision here. Uh, what it's removing us from is this notion that somehow this is just all ethereal and some kind of you know, mystical sort of a thing. I think we're talking about something that says, no, we're talking about blueprints. We're talking about drawings here. We're talking about uh, the hardcore. Because there's some people that will say, well, you know, this isn't an actual temple. You know, we're the temple of the Lord now. So this is allegorically talking about the church. But I think as we see this passage unfold, there's a lot of things about this that really don't fit into the idea that this is something I hope isn't going on in our hearts as Christians, for sure. So the angel stood and said, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, 
and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And that's three and a half years. So, you know, what we're seeing here is something that's pretty radical for a lot of people and will bring up a bunch of controversy depending on where you share it, that in the tribulation period, in the final seven years, there is going to be a rebuilt temple of God on its historic site. Now, scripturally, there's really not a lot of ways around all of this. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 26 and following, you guys can look some of these up on your own. I'm going to give you a little jet tour here. Um, we are told that the prince who is to come is going to enter into a strong covenant with many nations for seven years or for one seven-year period of time in that prophecy. But at the midway point, he is going to take away offering and sacrifice. Well, you can't have offering and sacrifice in Judaism, without a temple. We are also told in Daniel chapter 12 that from the time the abomination that causes desolation is set up in the temple, there will be three and a half years until the culmination of all things, uh, that God is going to fulfill all of his purposes in three and a half years from that time. Well, Bo, what is the abomination that causes desolation. It sounds like a cool album cover. Yeah, that's for it sure. does. It does. <laughs> but uh, the abomination of desolation is something that Jesus spoke of too. He quoted yeah. Matthew twenty-four. Uh, yeah, yeah, he quoted Daniel. And the abomination of desolation is something that causes um, uh, the temple to be desecrated. Um, basically, that's kind of the idea here. Some that's something that's abominable. Yeah. Um, something that desecrates the sacred. Yeah. It takes the sacred and it makes it. Uh, in the Old Testament, it would be the idea of making it common or um, treating it as something unholy. You know, it would profane something that is supposed to be holy. Yeah. So in order to have an abomination that causes desolation, mm -hmm. standing where it ought not, literally, right. uh, in Matthew 24, you've got to have a temple because unless you have a holy of holies, you can't have someone desecrating a temple that doesn't exist or is just in someone's imagination or experience spiritually. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, but when you study the book of Ezekiel, the big push in Ezekiel is that God is upset at the priests of in Israel uh, at that time for profaning the temple. Right. You know, for treating it as a common thing, not looking at things as holy. And it's interesting that John here is almost like, you know, he's measuring, you know, he's, he's given the rod to measure, almost like to reestablish, you know, to, you know, in the book of Ezekiel, it says, you know, the, the presence of the Lord left the temple. That was like, yeah. that's the horrible part of Ezekiel, yeah. you know, is that no longer is God's presence going to be there. It has been profaned. It, they have not obeyed the law. Yeah and what was required uh, and to, to have the presence of the Lord there. Yeah, and we've seen some previews of coming attractions of this abomination that causes desolation, this thing that desecrates the temple. Yeah. A fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, talk about a cocky name. It literally meant Epiphanes was a manifestation of Zeus. 
That when he looked in the mirror, I'm a Greek god. Hey, you know, that was the kind of ego that this fellow had. Uh, and he believed that Greek culture was destined to dominate the world. And so he comes to his newly conquered territory assigned to him, and he sees these Jews worshiping this Hebrew god. And he goes, no, 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 this won't do. Uh, and so he banned the scriptures, burned all the copies of it he could find. If a woman was caught circumcising her child, she and her child would be nailed to a wall uh, as a, uh, an example of what you don't do. And then his ultimate coup de grace, his crowning achievement, was setting up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and telling people to worship it. Well, it backfired on him because it got the locals so mad. A guerrilla war got going, and this group called the Maccabees eventually uh, took on arguably one of the best equipped armies in the world and caused him to flee in a few years. But that was a, a foreshadowing of that. And most scholars, when they take a look at these prophecies we see in Daniel, specifically describing the career of this Antiochus Epiphanes, he was foreshadowing a greater desecration of the temple that would happen in the last days, the ultimate abomination that causes desolation with a capital A and a capital D is yet to happen. It's described in the book of Second Thessalonians yeah. chapter 2. Uh, there we read uh, one of the most awful moments in the history of mankind described in Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. It says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day, the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now, that is going to be when the Antichrist reveals himself in full bloom. He's going to say, I'm God and you've got to worship me. Now, the reason that we say that this site of where a witness is going to be taking place. 42 months. Most believe this is the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Is that the temple sounds like a great idea. Yeah, you go with some of our tours of, of Israel uh, in the, uh, the uh, Jewish quarter. You can go to this place called the Temple Mount Society. And they will take you through this tour and they will show you how they are uh, putting together the priestly garments and the temple implements. And they have a yeshiva or a Jewish seminary where they're training young men how to be priests because they believe that uh, they will be the generation that will see a new Jewish temple built on its historic site. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that in that uh, on the supposed historic site of the temple, you've got two of the holiest shrines in Islam, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and those were purposely put there by the Muslims. What they would do, uh, we see this in Turkey now, uh, the Church of, uh, the, of Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, one of the most uh, wonderful and ornate uh, churches of the Byzantine Empire, has now been taken over and made into a mosque. And that's what Muslims do to show the superiority of their God. When they conquer someplace, they do that. So they place these two particular shrines in a, in a place on the Temple Mount with the idea of preventing the Jews from ever coming back and rebuilding its, their temple on its historic site. But it's very interesting. They may have miscalculated because when you go onto the temple site and you take a look at some of the descriptions of where the temple was, there's a growing 
thought that the actual site of the temple wasn't the place where the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are. It's all the way catty-cornered on the other side of this big square that is the Temple Mount. There's this one little smooth uh, piece of stone that you see there with a little uh, kind of a pergola, I guess, for lack of a better term, over it. Uh, and there are those who believe that this very well may have been the site of the old Holy of Holies. And, and that's why Jews, generally speaking, do not pray on the temple because they are worried that if they accidentally prayed on the site of the Holy of Holies, that would be a desecration in God's eyes. That's why they're so nervous about all of this. But if you look at it in that sense, there would be enough room to rebuild a temple on that site without tearing down the Muslim shrines. And it's very interesting. It says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. In other words, the Antichrist is going to come up with a deal that is going to allow the Jews and the Muslims to share the Temple Mount. Now, it's only the Antichrist who could pull that off because there's no way on God's green earth right now that any Muslim would tolerate a Jewish temple on what they call the Noble Sanctuary. And there is no way on God's green earth that any Orthodox Jew would allow the site of God's holiest place to be shared with these awful Gentiles. So it's going to take someone who is extremely, dare I say, supernaturally persuasive to get them to come together and agree to this sort of thing. But it is possible for that to happen. Now, notice it talks about leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Fascinating passage in Ezekiel 42 that talks about a wall separating the holy place from the common in the temple that Ezekiel saw. The word common, as you mentioned, is, it doesn't sound too hefty in English, but it literally can be translated as profane or obscene. And when you take a look at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, do you know what is written on the outside of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Arabic? The words, God is not begotten, begotten, nor does he beget. A direct refutation of John 3.16. From God's point of view, that's like obscenity. You know, yeah, and it's interesting too because when you read like John's writings, right? Uh, John wrote the Gospel of John, First John, Second John, Third John, and in there it's really interesting, especially in the small in the epistles, First John, Second John, and Third John, because he says, "If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father." Right, and he stresses this just over and over. He also stresses in the Book of John that some people will kill you thinking they're doing God like a favor. Like there's going to be a day where people kill people and they literally chant praises to God while you're being killed. And it's it, to me, it, it just, John was so cued in yeah. to uh, things of our day. Yeah. You know, where I've seen people uh, in video getting beheaded by groups of people, you know, and they're chanting yeah, the ISIS videos and yeah, things like that. like yeah. literally praising God. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting that John would stress so much this idea that if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Okay. You know, but, you need to have the Son. But here's the big setup, yeah. right? Right. Okay. 
who is going to get the Muslims and the Jews to play nice and rebuild this temple and bring everybody together? It's going to be the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It's going to be that strong covenant that was mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, in Isaiah 28 and verse 14, mm-hmm. it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you said, We have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. We have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. The strong covenant with many nations mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 is going to seem like the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's going to bring peace to these warring factions. For three and a half years, there's going to be unprecedented peace in the world. The Antichrist is going to be hailed as this great peacemaker. But it's a covenant with death. Yeah, and it's interesting because it says that there will, uh, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Yeah, the Gentiles, the profane. Yeah, and 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 so you're getting a lot of real Old Testament historical vibe here. Yeah, um, you know, so even though the Antichrist is, you know, it, it has this false peace going has this persona, has a propaganda machine that is just, you know, do we see a propaganda machine today? No, Bo. <laughs> no. Not as far as I can <laughs> right. tell. Well, Everything I read on the internet, I completely believe. That's right, totally. <laughs> you know, and it's weird because you, you read today that there's certain companies that own like 50% plus of the the internet. And so they can control the amount of you know, what goes out. And that's interesting, right? So when you're searching the internet, you, you have to understand that you have a company that's kind of regulating everything, you know, that owns most of it. And I, I got to imagine that the propaganda machine here is just going to be am- amazingly well, not sufficient. Just, not just mentally, but in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we are told that God will send upon them strong delusion. Mm-hmm. who will believe the lie, who did not find pleasure in the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's going to be a willful, oh, man, the Antichrist said it. It's got to be true. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, all this stuff in the Bible that seems to lie. Oh, well, that's just silly talk. This guy, he's really going to get us somewhere. He's really going to straighten everything out. And he's going to get results. Can't argue with results. Look, the Jews and the Muslims all get along. They're all worshiping on the same mountain. Who in the world but a wonderful peacemaker could possibly do something like that. Mm. But notice the, the language here. You mentioned it's very Old Testament-y. It says they will tread the holy city underfoot. Uh, the, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says that those words in the original language carry the idea of treating something with utter contempt, treading it underfoot. Uh, you know, it's not just they're going to be walking around someplace. This is where you're going to find them. It just means that they're going to be stomping proudly on God's stuff. And God does not take lightly to that. So God has a response. Notice what he does. Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now notice, in arguably the epicenter of darkness, as close to H-E double hockey sticks as you're ever going to want to get on planet Earth, this temple that has put, been put together not by the commandments of God, but by the manipulations of Satan himself. Dark, dark, dark place. What does God do? Does he nuke it till it glows and shoot it in the dark? No, he raises up 
two witnesses, two unprecedented witnesses who will prophesy 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Now notice, these two individuals are first described as witnesses. Now we began this study by talking about that's our job description as well to be witnesses for the Lord. And as we see how their ministry goes down, I think we're going to see some practical applications about how God wants our ministry in this world to go down. And notice they will prophesy, but what does it mean to prophesy? It means to have a really weird look on your face, man. And like you, you get some peyote. Yeah, and you kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I used to think. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the simplest definition, I think, is found in the book of Corinthians. Yeah. Um, in Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, yeah. where it talks about those who prophesy speak edification, exhortation, and comfort to people. Right. And, and so within the body of Christ, when uh, the prophetic word is being taught, there is an edification. There is a building up of people's knowledge there. You know, that's the edification. There's the exhortation. There's the strong coming alongside someone and bringing them to that place of understanding their folly or understanding the issue and making a decision, yeah. uh, going in, you know, get, get going in the right direction. And then there's that comfort side of the prophetic gift as well uh, that it mentions in 14.3. And, you know, it's so beautiful here because, it, you know, it, I'll give credit where credit is due, a real insight uh, that uh, Sean came up with in you know some of the study notes that he put together for us in, in preparing all of this. And boy, he does a, a wonderful job on that. But one of the things he points out that I'd never really connected with before was you know, in Revelation chapter 7, almost like out of nowhere, you've got these 144,000 uh, super amped up Jewish evangelists that are turned loose on the world. And they are 100% Jewish. It's not symbolic. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not the church. They're not, I mean, 12,000 from each of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, right? But how did those individuals find out what the truth of their faith was? Because they're in the tribulation period, we know they're not saved prior to the time of the rapture. They're still here. But the Lord gets a hold of their life, and someone has to disciple them up train them up, show them how to reach the world for the Lord. And, you know, when you see these two witnesses here, you know, like you said, they're prophesying. Prophecy, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, isn't for non-believers, but for believers to build them up in their faith. And so they're going to have this prophetic ministry, but they're also going to have that ministry as a witness inside working with the people of God. It's a word of prophecy. Outside, it's being a witness. And both are true at the same time. Boy, I think that is such an important word for us because we tend to do one thing or the other. You know, we both know a crazy guy named Pete LaJoy who is like the evangelist, uh, you know, just, it just he gets up in the morning and it's just like, wow. Well, someone find, comes to Christ. Find, find someone to evangelize. I mean, <laughs> he wakes I, up I, I go out to lunch with Pete and he's sharing the Lord with the waitress and by the time she comes back with the check, uh, she's just weeping and giving her life to the Lord. You know, I try to do that. I go, I got other tables, sir. You're wasting my, you know, he's just got this amazing gift. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there's people like that 
And then there's people that just kind of say, well, you know, I, I just don't like interacting with those icky non-believers, and I'm just going to stay here in the church because everybody agrees with me, and it's nice and safe. And, you know, there's a real danger in that. Uh, you know, I, I think of what Paul dealt with at the church at, at Philippi. There were two women named Euodia and Syntyche, and he told them to agree together in the Lord. Now, this is one of those situations where, you know, we say, wouldn't it be great to have your name mentioned in the Bible? Not in this case, because, you know, what Paul goes on to say is, I urge you, my fellow yoke fellow, to encourage these women who were fellow servants of mine in sharing the gospel. And the thing you discover about Euodia and Syntyche, J. Vernon McGee refers to them as Euodius and Syntyche. You know, they had kind of gotten out of being outside the church fighting the good fight, and instead they were inside the church fighting the bad fight. And if you want to be a problem in the church, you, you want to be one of those people, you know, that non-believers look at and go, man, I don't know what they're selling, I'm not buying that person is, I just, you know. You, you want to shipwreck the work of God. Get ingrown. You know, never share your faith. Never pray for non-believers. Never reach out beyond your comfort zone uh, of, of believers in Christ and reach out to them with Jesus' love. Just keep it in the church. Keep it all about doctrine. Keep it all about, uh, you know, uh, you know, well, we got programs and we got to have this and, and so on. Now, there's definitely a place to build ourselves up inside the church. Don't get me wrong. But if that's all you do, you're going to become stunted. You're going to become selfish. You're going to become distant from God. Maybe you can pat yourself on the back with your self-righteousness, but you're going to say, man, my relationship with God used to be so different, and now it's so boring and dull and stale. Uh, why, you know? And, and it's probably because you're a Dead Sea Christian. You know, when you go see the Dead Sea in Israel, you discover something. The Dead Sea has a very reliable water source. Uh, the Jordan River flows into it, you know, 24-7, 365, not hurting for water, but it's dead. Nothing is in it. Why? Because it is one of the lowest places on earth you can stand uh, below sea level and not be drowning. It's in the middle of what's called the Jordan Rift, and all the water flows into the Dead Sea, but it never flows out of the Dead Sea. And because there's no outflow, the whole thing dies. You know, I've seen too many times there are Dead Sea Christians. You know, they're good at prophecy, you know, talking about building people up and sharing the word inside the church, but they never get outside the church to be a witness. And I think that is deadly for us as believers in Christ. I think that has shipwrecked more bona fide works of Christ than almost any other spiritual mistake you can make. Do you go, oh, but Scott, I, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. You just have to get caught in the act of being a Christian around non-Christians. And that's not really that hard to do. When you stop and think about it, you go, oh, you know, I, I haven't memorized the four spiritual laws. And, you know, I don't know. Hey, they might ask me a hard question. Hey, you know, you want to get started on being a witness? Here's something that I think will really take the fear factor out of it. Remember Fear Factor, that show where people had to eat bugs and do all kinds of awful things and be scared and all this? Sometimes people look at witnessing or being a witness in that way. Here's how you take the fear factor out of it. Here's what you do. Just be perceptive of people maybe outside the church who are struggling. It's not hard to spot someone who's struggling these days, is it? I mean, struggle is kind of what we do. That's why there's so many complainers and whiners and people building statues to critics and so forth. 
But if you see somebody who's struggling, you know, just coming up to them and saying something like, you know, um, you know, like I heard you're going through something, or I heard that, that, that life's kind of, you know, I heard you lost somebody, or I heard, I heard that, you know, this and this. Just say something like, can I pray for you? Man, I'll tell you, I never had a Christian pray for me when I was a non-Christian. I probably had some pray about me and call down imprecatory psalms, but, but how are you going to turn that down? You know, especially when you're hurting. I kid you not, when you reach out to non-believers and just, you know, it, it seems so, well, of course we pray about stuff because we're Christians, right? But how many people do you know who've never had someone pray for them? And you don't have to make a big hooping and hollering these and thous kind of prayer. Just saying, Lord, just please come alongside my friend here and, and please help them with this burden that they're going through. And I pray you'd show them how much you love them and, and just, just bless them, Lord. Just, just let them know that you care. In Jesus' name, amen. And I kid you not, you probably see them just like stare at you like, ah, they're not going to know whether to spit or wind their watches. Now think, Bo, even when you're in the, the mode of cussing out Christians back when you were uh, B.C. Bo, right? If someone had come up to you and, and you were like struggling, you're hurting about something, you just said, hey, Bo, you know, I, I see, man, you just, you're, you're so up, and, but I see you, can, can I pray for you? What would you have said? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I probably would have been a little puzzled by it all, you know, because it would have threw me off. Yeah, I would have um, too, but I would have probably gone. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Uh, yeah. But God honors that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think uh, I, I think what you're touching on something so neat, and 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 that is sometimes you know we get scared of even just opening up our mouth, you know, because we don't know what to say. Um, but sometimes just doing acts of kindness, yeah. you know, just being kind to yeah. people, just being hospitable, um, just being friendly, um, just being, you kind of do that in your neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I ride my bike like Kermit the frog and I say <laughs> hi to everybody, I wave to everybody. <laughs> Sylvia thinks I'm a little nuts. You know, she's like, why do you do that all the time? But I just, I tend to do that. I get on my skateboard you know, just go, um, even though I'm almost 50, I still do it. It's like, I just, I never know who I'm going to run into. Um, you know, literally, literally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you know, and, and sometimes it's just getting to know people, you know, love your neighbors yourself. And I, I just think, well, man, these people live right next to me. Like I need to get to know them a little bit. Yeah. And so just being outside, smiling, saying hi, um, you know, those kind of things, uh, I, I think, are, go a long way. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, Pam and I call them divine appointments, and that's not original with us. Yeah. But one thing we pray about when we're praying about our day in the morning, you know, we do a little morning devo and, and all of that, is, Lord, give us divine appointments. Yeah. Bring us across, people across our path that, that we can encourage in some way. And, and you don't have to be the one who closes the deal and, you know, oh, there's the four spiritual laws and which circle represents your life and why is there any good reason why you can't receive it? You know, maybe God will lead you to do that. But more often than not, if it's just something as simple as lightening the load of someone who lives three doors down for you, doing them a favor, mm-hmm. um, asking them if you can pray for them, you know, showing kindness and compassion to people, that's what being a witness is, you know, being a Christian doesn't end when you go through those double doors over there. Yeah. You know, that's where it starts really. 
And, and I just think it is so interesting that God sets up these two witnesses who prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Yeah, so they start the yeah. tribulation. So just so everybody's clear, they're, yeah. we're starting the tribulation period, the seven-year period, with the two witnesses. Right. That's the idea. Yeah, they're on the scene. They're on the scene. Yeah, and they're clothed, before we go, they're clothed in sackcloth. Yeah, they're clothed in sackcloth. Have you ever worn sackcloth? You know what sackcloth is? It's like wearing a gunny sack. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, going through Fraternity Rush at the U of A, uh, one of the things they did to us in Hell Week was we had to wear burlap underwear. You had to go get a gunny sack, and you had to cut leg holes out on it. And, uh, you know, the, some of the people had gone through it before goes, yeah, you, what you want to do is you want to go down to the laundry and, you know, just put a whole thing of fabric softener in there and, you know, because it's going to get gnarly for you for after a week of wearing too this Too much sort of information, thing, you know, right? Too you know, much so, so, you know, it's just like, oh, it, the, the, the uh, fabric softener, by the way, doesn't work. Uh, it's, 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 it's rough stuff. Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah, so these two guys are clothed in sackcloth. It's like they're wearing really coarse, uncomfortable cloth. Why are they doing that? Well, the Old Testament idea is, of course, mourning. That's the first thing that comes to my mind in knowing the Old Testament is that there's, there, there's some kind of mourning and seriousness to their ministry. Um, and, and so that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And it's kind of an interesting idea uh, i want I want to ask you something about why is there just two like why is there just two witnesses well probably the the best answer to that is first of all it's kind of predicted uh-huh. and then second of all uh, it was foreshadowed uh, and you know the identity of these two witnesses obviously is uh, is kind of a, a matter of, of debate but the reason you don't have five bazillion witnesses, right, is because if God had sent 5,000 witnesses, right, mm-hmm. I think the average person would go, they got it covered. You know, say you became a Christian, you know, through their mail, well, they got it covered. These are the experts. These are the pros. Mm. You've only got two of these witnesses. Yeah, it's interesting. And they got to reach a whole world. Yeah, in right? sackcloth. Yeah. And, and, you know, the sackcloth picture there tells me a couple of things. First of all, you know... Bless their hearts. Uh, the people who put together that Bible TV series, remember that? Yeah. Yeah, they'd have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and they kept showing him. He's just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jerusalem's burning down. Hmm. You know, and it was just so, so cold and just so stoic? emotionless and huh. stoic. You know, I mean, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet for a reason. You want to find out, read the book of Lamentations. But this picture of sackcloth tells me something about them. When we think about these two prophets, and put my cards on the table, I think it was Moses and Elijah, you know, we tend to think of these stained glass image people who really don't care about others. They're so up there in the ethereal and the spiritual and and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. that they can't be touched with the feeling of people's infirmities. Mm. And so they're not there just to say, goeth and getteth them, Lord, and we're going to sit back here and watch you just fry these non-believers here. I, I think there's a broken heartedness that is being portrayed here. Why? Because God's heart breaks for the world. Yeah. These guys understood who they were representing, and they weren't just going to speak the truth, right? How do we build people up according to Ephesians chapter 4? Speaking the truth in love. 
And as soon as you love something, get ready for your heart to get broken. That's the price. That's the admission price for loving anything. And so these two witnesses are not there. Oh, God, you're making me leave heavenly glory, and i got to come back and slum with these people. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, No, they just looked at the world, and they looked at these people being led astray, and it crushed them. It broke their hearts. Mm, that's powerful. Um, I was thinking too, like on the t- maybe two has to do a little bit with uh, that idea in the Old Testament of establishing every word with two or three witnesses. Yeah, and you see Jesus using that in the book of Matthew. Um, he he reiterates that Old Testament idea of uh, the church, it's it, it, uh, church discipline, what we call Two or this, more, two and or when more. he sent the disciples out mm-hmm. on their witnessing tour, yeah. how did he send them out? Two. Groups of two. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it seems like there's an establishing, you know, the, the book of Revelation is, a, uh, in a sense, a something very Old Testament. Israel would be purged out of the land if they became profane. God keeps saying in the Old Testament that the land is mine. And if you're going to live in the land and I'm going to be your God and that land's mine, then you need to walk according to my statutes. Right. And if you don't, then you will be purged out of the land. The land will vomit you out and I will make it profane or I'll make it holy. Yeah. And so God, it seems like he's establishing the earth once again, he's going. This earth is going to go through like a giant purge of the profane, and the two witnesses are a, a part of that whole work yeah. of a reestablishing Jerusalem, um, reestablishing the holiness of God in the world. Something that most people today, you know, when you talk about hey, God's holy, pe- most people today are just like what? And like, one other trippy thought, yeah, is this. When God was going to drop the judgment hammer on Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. first thing he did before Genesis 19, where the hammer dropped, was Genesis 18, where he sat down with Abraham and told him what he was going to do. Well, Abraham's encounter is really interesting. Yeah, Three men approach. One of them speaks to Abraham, first person as God. The other two with him are sent down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says something really trippy to Abraham. He says, I'm sending my angels down there, and I'm going to see. Their cry has come up to me in heaven, but I'm going to see what's really going on down there. Did God need to send those two angels? I think it was probably for the benefit of Lot. Uh, Does God need to send two witnesses into this Christ-rejecting world? No. But anyone who understood the Old Testament would look at these two and probably go, ooh, maybe we're getting close to Sodom City around here. And God is even going to refer to Jerusalem as Sodom Mm. spiritually in in a couple of verses here. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, the dispatch of the two right before judgment, if maybe that's one of the things that gets the attention of this the 144,000 are going, whoa, 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 whoa. We've seen this before. Right, right. It's time to get right or get left. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, hear what these, these two prophets have to say. They respond to the message. The two prophets build into them, and they take the gospel of the world so that every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe gets reached mm. during this period of time. 
So, you know, it's kind of fascinating how all these things kind of tie yeah. in there. Yeah. Well, once again, we've come to the end of our time. It was just getting good, too, man. We were just, just getting going. Rocking and rolling here. Just revving up the but fifth gear. Not to worry. We'll be back next week, and we will talk about the two olive trees and the two lampstands and, yeah. and the various theories about who these two witnesses really are. Um, one thing I will tell you going into all of that, I have in my ministry career had no less than, I think, 11 different people come up to me and tell me they were one of the two witnesses. <laughs> and if you're one of those people, I'm here to tell you tonight, no, you're not. So on that, let's pray. Father, <laughs> thank you so much that you give us the task of standing in a very dark place, this world. And it's so discouraging for us sometimes to see how uh, leadership and finances and and uh, the environment and everything that we thought we could put our trust in, even uh, churches having massive scandals in our day and age. It, it just feels like the foundations are shaken. But I thank you, Lord, that you have plopped us right in the middle of this very dark place. And there's that old saying, the darker the, the night, the more your light shines. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would come to us and give us a vision, just as these two witnesses are put in the epicenter of darkness, uh, literally the, the, the place the Antichrist is, is weaving together in his, his cunning and his, his wickedness and his sinister ways to uh, be the ultimate insult in the face of God. You put your two witnesses right in the midst of all of that to show people that there's an alternative, to show people that, that there is another path. God, we just ask you that in this dark world, you would give us that ability to shine with your light, to be people that are different, that do things without disputing or complaining, that, that we can hold out to people the word of life, that, that we would have that, that glorious moment where a non-believer comes up to us and says, why are you so different? Why do you get such peace in your life? Why, why aren't you uh, pointing fingers and trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong and saying, yay for my side? Uh, Lord, what a beautiful thing it would be if we were able to say, well, it's not me, but I can tell you about Jesus who changed my life, who gave me love, who, who showed me his light. And and what he did for me, he can do for you too. Lord, may we uh, just redouble our efforts to be usable by you, whatever life situation we're in. There are no accidents, Lord. Our circumstances personally are not just happenstance. And so, Lord, wherever we are, give us that vision and the filling and anointing power of your spirit to be witnesses, not something we try to gin up and do for you, but because your Holy Spirit has come upon us with power, may we right now ask for that, that coming upon power of your Spirit and believe that you're going to give it to us to change this world before we get out of here. As Lord, your coming is so soon, and we just want to be found doing what you want us to do. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.